and welcome back to This Is Our Design, Sound On Sight's Hannibal podcast dedicated to Brian Fuller's series based on the characters created by Thomas Harris. I am Sean Coletti, contributing writer at Sound On Sight, and today I will be drinking my favorite bargain bourbon, the Elijah Craig 12-year, which you can get for about 20, 25 bucks, ideally uh, at like a BevMo or something like that. It's a fantastic bourbon. And as always, I am joined by my co-host, Kate Kolzik, TV editor at Sound On Sight. Kate, you're not drinking. Why are you not drinking? I, I'm not drinking because I'm currently parked in a car outside of a uh, a popular chain establishment that has free Wi-Fi because my internet is down. But in my mind and spirit, I am, I am enjoying a nice, let's say, uh, Patron tequila and tonic. Nice little squeeze of lime, because y'all are crazy with your bourbon. Not a fan of the bourbon myself. <laughs> that's a dedication that you're doing this in your car, by the way. That's that's <laughs> what we do here on This Is Our Design. Uh, this week we're going to be talking about Season 1, Episode 2, Amuse Bouche, written by Jim Danger Gray and directed by Michael Reimer. And joining us as special guest for this week, who is also a special guest on the second episode of our first run from the AV Club, Les Chapel. Welcome back, Les. Hello, Sean. Hello, Kate. Glad to have you. Glad to talk to you guys again. Uh, I am drinking. I am also drinking bourbon. I'm enjoying a Buffalo Trace Private Reserve on the rocks. See, but you could be drinking anything other than that. That's what I'm. That's where you guys lose me. But the question is, why would we want to? <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. What do you have against whiskey? It's gross. You see, Come like on. just just the it's smell a- of tequila makes me want to throw up a little bit. And besides. Bourbon is the pa- it, bourbon is the patriotic thing to drink. It is America's only domestically produced alcohol. I, I would give it to you if this were ju- justified, but I don't know. I think I think I think we're all doing it wrong. I think we should be having a really nice red wine, probably with Hannibal. If I'm honest, to accompany pork in a red sauce. You know, <laughs> well, yeah, quote I'll, unquote pork. We'll be doing a, a different one each week, so I'll get to the red wine eventually. Uh, but for now, let's go ahead and get started. And as always, I'll begin with our guest this week. And Les, I wanted to ask you uh, about now the relationship between what seemed to be our two main characters in Hannibal and Will. And um, just address that this episode kind of shows Hannibal trying to push Will in the direction of connecting with the killer to the point of enjoying it. We haven't seen Hannibal kill anyone on screen, but we know who he is uh, somewhat based on the source material and those adaptations. But do you think Hannibal can only connect with people who enjoy the power that comes with killing? Or can he also connect with people, you know, maybe in a context like his his dinner date with Jack? Uh, well, I think by Han- in Hannibal's perspective, it's the fact that connecting with someone who enjoys killing or is fascinated with killing to the degree that he is, that is simply to him a more fascinating and stimulating conversation than the one that he's enjoying with Jack. Uh, his, con- his conversations with Will are very much sort of, well, <laughs> to, coin- to use a phrase, setting the table for the for clearly wanting to open up to get will to open up to him more and really understand this gift of em- this unique empathy gift that he has. I mean we saw in the premiere that he is that he's oddly fascinated by it and this is very much him sort of trying to peel things back to understand this thing happened to this person with this level of empathy. What does that mean? Yeah, I guess what I would say is that it seems that he can have other he can have interesting and uh intellectual and stimulating conversations with 
people who aren't interested in killing, but he can't have honest ones, really. And who knows how honest Hannibal gets with anyone, but that is a big part of his fascination with life and with uh, various types of people. So I guess that's what I would say is he seems like he's in search of an honest conversation at times. Exactly. And there's that moment at the very end of the episode where he talks to Will about the, about the roof that fell on the, on the, on the church, on the group of people in the church seeing hymns, which is also, that's a bit of text that's directly taken from red dragon. And you can tell he's discussing this, not in the sense of this is something horrifying, but this is something that happened. What's the universe like that we exist in where this sort of thing happens? Don't think about the people. Just think about the event in an analytical sense. And and talking about that moment and tying it to that omniscient power and then using that to kind of make Will feel more powerful by extension. I think that what we've seen in these first couple episodes is Characters who are interested in another character for whatever reason um, kind of almost play the same kind of game that one might when you are beginning to, to date someone. And this, this game of trying to impress them in some way. And so last week we saw Jack in the pilot kind of flatter Hannibal by saying that even to a layman like himself and kind of ceding to Hannibal's intelligence that he could understand uh, Hannibal's publication about social exclusion uh, and in this episode we see Hannibal do somewhat similar things to Will because he's in intrigued in that kind of way as well so it's not just that um, appeal to power but also the way that he uh, rubber stamps it as Will puts it um, his, his write up so that they can kind of just cut to the, the direct conversation in that last scene also, because as viewers, we everybody's pretty much heard of Hannibal Lecter, so we know what he is, or we have some sense uh, from the films and, and the books. And so to have the show so quickly go to him referencing God as, as a killer and us knowing you know, that he is one as well, that immediately in, in just the second episode, we have Hannibal referencing himself as a sort of God figure. And uh, it's it's when you are familiar with the character, I mean, I can't imagine what this show would be like if somebody had never heard of Hannibal Lecter, but having that so quickly become part of the conversation, especially as, you know, Hannibal and Will have only had a handful of scenes together at this point, that's particularly entertaining for me. And among the the scenes that they have had together, uh, the one that ended the pilot was Will walking in on um, Hannibal holding... Abigail's hand as she was in a coma and again she's used to connect these two characters here where Hannibal's asking about the, the obligation that they have to her and this is another way in which uh, these two characters connect because they both feel to some extent that she is a, a surrogate daughter and that their actions have certain implications going forward uh, Less before I move on did you want to mention anything else about some of the, the early connections that you're seeing being drawn either actively by these characters and and mostly that's on Hannibal's part because he's attempting to bridge that gap or or maybe kind of on the periphery what Brian Fuller's doing. Well, it's yeah, this is definitely an episode that's all about the connections and drawing people in. Uh the scene where Hannibal has Jack over for dinner and he's cat he's just taught he's sort of 
he's half ta- he's half making conversation, half trying to psychoanalyze Jack. It's the exact same sort of conversation that he's ha- that he's sort of having with Will. That this is a person who's inter- who is interesting to him, and he sort of wants to get draw this person more into his life, less out of his own need for connection, as it is he sort of wants to study and figure out who this person is and that scene also includes one of the just one of those amusing lines where with the double meaning that we as viewers know where he's like i would love to have you and your wife for dinner (laughs) yeah it's i think it's just very interesting to see how to see those flip sides of those two the two ways hannibal could draw people in because he can draw jack in by being half casual half analytical and he can draw will in by being by being half analytical and half the way he when he rubber stamps it he says yeah i don't i have i agree with you we have no time for this so let's just get rid of this and now we can really start to talk because to because he knows that that's something that will would respect and will does respect it up until the point that will's like okay maybe you shouldn't have done that for me so quickly well less now that you've mentioned it uh the, the line about having jack and his wife over for dinner uh i wanted to ask Kate, also in that scene, Hannibal is kind of overtly watching Jack eat, and obviously um, the the implication there is that we should be paying attention to that as if he is feeding human meat to Jack. And I wanted to know if you think instances like this feel a little bit too wink-wink, nudge-nudge, or if this is something that's somewhat necessary to have early on in a series like this because this is kind of what we know the Hannibal story to be. This is one of those moments where obviously this podcast is structured to be uh, enjoyed by those who who are just starting the series and who have not who do not know what is coming next. But this is one of those moments the, the, the that exact scene, and I have a note about it. I have something written down in my notes about it as well. When I first saw this, I was. I held on very long to the notion that this was just pork and that the show was kind of playing with us and teasing us. And, um, that because I had this notion that it would be rude to feed somebody something that they, you know, they wouldn't want to eat. So Hannibal wouldn't do that. And that's just me bringing extra textual textual information to, to the show. Um, but that was very much the way that I viewed it the first time I saw it, uh, that it was, is it or isn't it? And now, after you know having seen more of the show and coming back to it, um, it feels more heavy-handed. But again, I you know I still enjoyed it. And again, I remember that the first time through, it didn't bother me at all. Yeah. Well, you mentioned it would be he that he would consider it rude to feed those things right right away. But going back to the the pilot, I'm a hundred percent certain that that protein that the sausage and that protein scramble he gave to Will was human meat. And I don't know if Hannibal – I don't know if he views that as sort of a – at least this early in the game considers it a power play or he doesn't even really think about it. For this for this particular meal, I think it's sort of – I think, frankly, you could flip a coin as to whether or not it is or it isn't. And that sort of half-second pause that Hannibal has before he confirms to Jack it is pork is designed to sort of build that uncertainty. And frankly, I, I sort of like that uncertainty. I like the implication that – well, yes, Hannibal's a monster and a cannibal, but he's also a gourmand, and not everything on his t- on his table has to be carved off of someone. It can just be he got a particularly good slab of pork at the butcher's. 
I I probably agree that it's it might not necessarily be 50-50. I think I would maybe lean more so to it also being a power play, despite the fact that I would agree that it would be a rude act, but we don't really know exactly where Hannibal stands on that issue right now and also in relation to each of these characters quite just yet. So I could also see it easily being um, human meets. And to answer my own question, I think that it will absolutely depend on the viewer in terms of whether this is too heavy-handed, but I think because this is only the second episode into a Hannibal TV series, um, there are certain expectations, and those expectations absolutely should not matter at all when composing something like this. It, it should not, Brian Fuller should not feel like, hey, I need to have these references or these callbacks or these homages, but it certainly helps kind of ease the viewer into a new version of the world. So I think on that level, for me, it works and is maybe a little less annoying than it might have been otherwise. Um, an image that I want to talk about, or rather that I want less to talk about, because Kay and I have talked about this ad nauseum on this podcast, is the stag. And so I'm going to have you begin, less and uh, just point out that the stag appears in this episode uh, during one of Will's dreams when he's at the hospital sleeping. Uh, it appears and then it, it leaves down the corridor, and um, visually this also coincides with Alana's arrival. So her footsteps are kind of mirroring the stags until she takes off of her sho- until he, she takes off her shoes. Do you take this visual cue to mean that there's some kind of connection between the stag and Alana, or do you see the stag as serving a, a different purpose at this point? Also keeping in mind that the corridor lights go off once the stag is gone. Hmm. Okay, that, that's interesting, and I have to quick I have to quick rewind because it's been a little while since I've seen the pilot. Is this the first time we've seen the stag, or does the stag show up in the pilot? The stag shows up very, very briefly in the pilot, and it's just kind of a, a brief image of it as Will is taking a shower. Okay, gotcha. All right. Uh, okay. Well, to answer the first part of the question, I know I don't make the connection to Alana as the stag, largely because Alana has been so defined in both the premiere and this episode as trying to keep Will safe, just sort of keep Will cushioned from the world that Jack wants to throw him into. And the stag is absolutely nothing about that about that beast is safe. Uh, there's the implic- it sort of ties into some of the like the episode is Will being sort of drawn closer towards Hannibal. Will is also being drawn in this instance closer to the stag itself. Like this is essentially the hunt is beginning. But as to whether or not the stag is hunting Will or Will's hunting the stag, he doesn't know the answer to that question at this point. All he knows what we're basically getting from this is there is a something dark moving around will at this point and he is only now really becoming aware of what that force is and i don't think he i don't think honestly in his dream version when he's going out into the hallway he's not essentially he's not going there to hunt it or waiting for it to charge at him he's essentially just wants to look at it and figure out what is this thing and what exactly does it mean and i think at this point in the show we're not supposed to know what it means. It is this malevolent, otherworldly presence that is that exists in Will's mind, and for the purposes of the show, that's as good as it existing. 
Oh, that's really interesting because, uh, and I love the stag. Just it's, it's such a fun image, especially. Cause... Oh yeah, there's a, there's a, yeah. Sorry, just a quick interject. There's a stat there in Portland. There's a statue, where, Portland, Oregon, where I live. There's a statue of a large elk downtown, and I could never walk past it without just looking at it and shuddering after this show. <laughs> well, see, but for me, the stag is. <laughs> not a malevolent presence at all it's a very benign presence and uh, interesting yeah so that's what i think is so you know so fun about it because here you know the show's been on for a while and people have theories but unlike many other shows or many other images or symbols like something like the stag on other shows where people kind of come to a consensus of what it probably means or how it's being used there are a lot of different interpretations for for the stag and for me it's a very uh it's not always safe it certainly is not always uh a, an image or a, a symbol guiding will to safety in the way that for example alana would rather him be in a protective bubble uh but i certainly do not see it as a malevolent presence and that and now i want to go back i didn't take any notes on this now i want to go back and listen to the music in that scene with the stag, but uh, to see if that's tying into my read of, the, of of it, but no, I see it as much more of a um, much more of a complicated figure than that, or not not much more of a benign and uh, sort of a, a leader for for Will, taking him on this journey that maybe he shouldn't go on, but if he's gonna, the stag will lead him. I think that. Uh, categorization leader is a good one and it's one that I hadn't thought of but it's one that I certainly agree with now that I think about it um, I'd personally like to believe and this obviously comes from having an experience with the series but, but going forward I want to see if the identity uh, of this stag in terms of um, what other characters might we connect with it I want to see if that identity is fluid because at least in this sequence it does seem very very concretely tied to Alana, and so even if that's not the aim or the purpose, um, just thinking about it in, in that terminology and in, in that image, uh, I find interesting just because of what it implies Alana's presence is hmm. in the show at this point. So, they see. Um, I find that interesting because I actually don't equate the stag. I don't if we're going with equating the stag with a character. I'm, I don't equate the stag with Alana. What I'm actually equating the stag with at this point is Abigail, because it yes, it appears when Alana's entering the room, but it's Abigail's room that is pacing outside. A large part of this is comes from all of the stag imagery that's associated in uh, Garrett Jacob Hobbs' cabin, and of course the scene of the woman impaled on the on the stag head in the previous episode. So I, I just, I honestly see it as more as that it's connected at this point, less to, not to Alana, but to uh, Garrett Jacob Hobbs and to Abigail Hobbs and to the darkness that Will engaged with when he was, that when he was in Minnesota and he killed Garrett Jacob Hobbs. So yeah, he's already having those hallucinations and... of Hobbs popping up at the murder scene, uh, coming towards him at the shooting range. And so that those images are there, but I feel like the stag is a more as subtle as a giant black stag with feathers can be. It's a more subtle representation <laughs> of whatever darkness Will has been touch uh, Will has been approaching. And that's why I'd be interested 
to trace it going forward as something that's fluid because I think that everything that you just said certainly has weight and can be applied there. Um, <clears throat> I want to move on to uh, maybe a smaller subject that I almost forgot uh, to put into my notes, but I hope this doesn't kind of go into uh, Kit's classical corner too much. But <laughs> to kind of just uh, talk about and analyze as much as we'd like to uh, the opening credits, the title design, because this is the first episode in which we see it. It's something that will define this series going forward. It hasn't changed since then. Not that that's a spoiler or anything, um, but it's it's very unique. It's very Hannibal in terms of what it's doing, and I kind of just wanted to get uh, both of your general thoughts on it. Yeah. Well, first of all, I love the opening credits. I think they're gorgeous and and macabre in the way Hannibal itself is. Uh, What I really appreciate about them is the minimalist quality of it. They're not epic world-spanning credits in the way Game of Thrones are, nor are they sort of tongue-in-cheek about the murder quality the way Dexter's are. But they're very quiet, like it's all white on red, and the way the red just the i'm impressed how they're able to do so much with the way the red flows like you think it can simultaneously be a glass of wine being poured or it can be the wine dripping off of the off of ribs is the way it looks in one point until it all coalesces together into the face of hannibal and i think it's very good just to show the sort of twin sides of the show the way that it's brutal and bloody but there's also that that restrained cultured approach to the way Hannibal conducts himself and I just think they're very very pretty yeah they're definitely they're definitely evocative and uh and I'm I'm a big fan of of a opening credit sequence particularly one that has a theme song and I don't know if you can call a theme song but for me it (laughs) kind of is something it's I consider it less a theme song and more just a collection of discordant notes (laughs) well it, it, it definitely sets the tone for the show and I always, I always watch, and I always try to figure out who all the different faces are, and I usually can tell which one is Jack, and I obviously Hannibal, but the other ones I have trouble with. There's too many of them, and I never quite am sure who is whom. But uh, I do, like you said, uh, Les, I really appreciate the particular shade of red, because if they were going for straight-up blood, it would be darker and it would be thicker. And so I, I like that it is... Um, that That would be too on the nose... And so instead, it's more uh, it's more artistic and it's more up to interpretation, I suppose. And I really do appreciate that. It's certainly, yes, it's a, it gets you to pay attention with the with the clean white against this very striking red. The the detail that I didn't know until somebody, one of our listeners, pointed it out to to me last uh, last season was that. The, the placing of Moss Mickelson and Hugh Dancy's names alternate between one being slightly on top of the other from week to week. And so I, I think in this first one, uh, Moss Mickelson's name is slightly up and to the right. And so next week, what we should see is the opposite, which when they told me that, I was like, well, of course, that's what it is, because why wouldn't it oh, be? Yeah. But it was uh, that, also mind-blowing. Ama- that is amazing. <laughs> Yeah, our listeners are pretty great. I do have to ask it now. How have we gotten this far into the podcast and we haven't talked about the mushrooms yet? Because, ugh. I mean, if get, I mean, yes, the the idea of a can of from the first episode of a hunting cannibal eating his victims who look like his daughter is creepy. But a guy 
who tracks down diabetics, pumps them with sugar water, and turns them into living mushroom gardens. Maybe I'm just maybe just fungi creep me out more than other people, but eesh. No, that's uh, you're clearly like looking over my shoulder right now because the next note on my notebook is analysis of creativity of tableau. So you're yeah, there. I am looking right. I am looking right over your shoulder right now, but don't look because that will make me angry. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, and that's the thing, and it's something that I we talk about on the Televerse because we talk about a lot of pilots on the Televerse, but pilots are hard, and second episodes are often even harder. And so to have just as creative, even creepier, but uh, just as visually uh, arresting a tableau in this second episode, and to go in such a different direction with it, I think was very important for the, for the show, and also specifically from the you know the the set design and and all the creative people behind the show. So yeah, going in such a memorable and creepy direction for this second episode, I think was important. Agreed. I do think this episode was more was a bit more procedural than the pilot was, but it does make up for it in the sheer extent that it's going to to make Hannibal seem sort of surrealistic and operatic in terms of the violence that's being perpetuated. The creepiest part for me was when Will's doing his pendulum thing and and flashbacking the the crime scene. As soon as he comes out of it, when the not corpse reaches up and grabs him, good lord. <laughs> like, that's terrifying. The makeup team did such a great job with this. And just, I don't know if it was actually like peeling back the skin that I think uh, Beverly was doing. But to see like most of the, the lips and the cheek removed from one of the corpses. Um, yeah, we'll be talking about this, I'm sure, many times during the summer, but it's, again, uh, how Hannibal does this on broadcast network TV is kind of amazing. And, you know, Beverly is creeped out, too, which I think is a nice little touch of character and is also an important one because, again, this is really creepy, and so it's nice to have our CSIs acknowledge that, and, yeah, even for them, even for people whose this is their job, this is still an extra, you know, level beyond. Yeah. Well, they're creeped out, but not so creeped out that Beverly can't ask if they see any shiitake mushrooms amongst the amongst the garden. Because she's awesome. Uh, at, Beverly is awesome, and not not to get away from the vigil, but I do want to say just how much I liked that er, that scene right before this one, where Beverly's teaching him to shoot, and she sort of jokes about how uh, they were going to pull a they were going to pull a Hank Schrader and put the bullets that he killed Garrett Jacob Hobbs with in loose sight and give them to him as as a memento. I thought she, I thought she was she was very human in that moment, and that was a great scene between Hugh Dancy and Hetty Ann Park when they're just talking the way normal people would. Well, quote unquote normal. Yes, certainly, and um, and that kind of brings me to the next point, which is about these supporting characters, because um, we get a little bit of everything here. So th- this episode attempts, I think, to varying degrees, to develop the the forensic team that works with. Uh, uh, with Will and Jack. So Katz, as you mentioned, is kind of functioning as an ally, jokes around with Will, kind of helps him relax so he gets uh, a better stance in his his firing at the range. Uh, Jimmy Price, they they have the one-liner about him being an alcoholic who is not recovering. And uh, Brian Zeller is unintentionally used by Freddie Lowndes 
in a sequence that happens off screen. And I was wondering, less since um, since Kate, you brought this up, right? The CSI team, so we'll shift it over. Uh, do you find these characters useful at this point, and do you even necessarily need or want them to be three dimensional, or do they kind of just work as they are right now? Now, I really, I really like the way that they go to an extent to make the to make the uh, CSI Baltimore, for lack of a better word, team actually feel like real people. Because yes, they're sort of ba- that bantering over the corpses. It does provide an edge of humanity to the st- to the show, and it also does help give the feeling that uh, Will and Jack aren't just operating in a vacuum, pursuing these characters. It Part of it goes to what I was talking about earlier about how this episode does feel like it's more crime procedural. So you've got your, to take a term from Bones, you've got your squints who are working trying to solve the case. But I think they add a nice little layer of levity to the proceedings. And having them around means that Will has pe- Will and Jack have people they can interact with other than Hannibal, which is important. It just I think it makes the world of the show feel a lot more lived in. I think they do a really good job with Beverly in this, and I was surprised to see. I had forgotten just how quickly they they incorporated her and gave her a personality and made her feel like a person. Um, and, and it's also it's it's remarkable how much a little throwaway line like "Oh, I'm not recovering" can can do how much that can do to make somebody feel like a character instead of you know intern number five or you know guy with scalpel. Um, but I did not think the that the decision to, with Brian particularly worked. Having him uh, having that him be the source for Freddie is just fine. But the way they do it feels very on the nose. I, I feel like Brian would tell Jack what uh, what what happened and not just kind of skulk in the background and then have one line basically off camera. Uh, to ab- about this, and then not have it brought back up again for the rest of the episode. I think they could have done a lot better with that, and um, that's something, especially with Jimmy and Brian, that's something that the show is going to struggle with for a while. I I think I would completely agree with that. That I don't I don't need the supporting cast to be so interconnected that it has to be somebody like Brian who is the person who connects Freddie Lowndes in. Um, it could have just been anybody, really. And the fact that he is working so closely with the main core, it, it almost feels like trying to initiate um, drama verging on melodrama, which doesn't necessarily suit what the show has been going for in these first two episodes. Yeah, I would agree. I Yeah, I would agree on that. But speaking of supporting characters, and since we're talking about it, I would like—I would actually like to shift to talk about Freddie Lowndes a little bit because this is the first time that we're meeting her. Uh, have either of you guys read Red Dragon or seen the movie? Nope. Yes. Okay, so from my perspective, I like because in the uh, books, Freddie Lowndes in the book and the film, Freddie Lowndes is basically a grabby tabloid journalist, and I like the way they found a way to sort of update that character for the modern age, like basically make her the Nikki Fink of true crime, and the way that she's willing to basically do anything to make sure her website is front and center for it. I think that she, I think that's a they modernize it well. I think that uh, Laura Jean 
I apologize in advance. Chastaki is giving an interesting performance. She's very, uh, she's very cool, very unemotional about it. Um, yes, she's terrified when the killer comes up to her and asks her about Will Graham, but there's still a very matter-of-fact professionalism to her to her perform to the way the character carries out her business, even when she's clearly been found out by Hannibal earlier in the episode. And so I, I just wanted, was curious what you guys think of Freddy, Freddy as a character operating in this universe. I actually have a lot of fun with her. I think she's, uh, I think it's a good decision. Uh, changing the gender, I think was a very smart choice. This is a show that needs more women. Yeah. Brian Fowler actually, in one interview already called it the star bucking of the character. <laughs> Um, but I do have written in my notes, really, she has to be naked. We have to be introduced to her naked. There's been almost no, there's no point to it. Why is she fresh out of the shower, I guess, but just not, you know, it just seems so strange. It's a strange choice. And, uh, and so that just felt, that felt attention grabby and not in keeping with everything else. Kate, some of us are just more creative when we're naked. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, then she's never. Uh, again, it's difficult to getting into this with with future knowledge, but it just it felt extraneous and completely unnecessary. And uh, I, I, if they were going to show that she had been just like been sleeping with somebody and I, and you had gotten her material from them, like the photos from them or something, then that then there's a reason for her to be naked. But I don't know why that was the way that we're introduced to her. It just felt completely arbitrary. Um, that being said, I do have in my notes here a few different times that uh, she, I, I love the the design for the character and particularly her red outfit when she's meeting Hannibal is just adorable and delightful. And I love it. Yes. I, I wrote, I wrote that down too. I just think that that little, that little plaid combo works so well, particularly against Han- against the blue plaid suit that Hannibal's wearing. I, would second almost everything that that Kate said. I also think that it's arbitrary and very uh, freshman show-y to to introduce a character like that. It it doesn't really serve much purpose. Um, But again, she is fun in this episode. To me, she's less of a character than a trope, but in in terms of talking about how some of these supporting characters function, um, I I think I like her perfectly fine just as the trope that she is. So I don't necessarily need more personality there uh... or any greater depth. Yeah, I also do like the fact that she exists in this universe sort of as an antagonist to everyone, to the other people in the show. I mean, the, obviously, a show called Hannibal, you've, you're thinking the, that Hannibal is going to be the primary antagonist. But I like the fact that she's just sort of flitting around on the periphery, causing trouble. Uh, Jack has her handcuffed and threatens her with arrest. Hannibal, get, Hannibal basically has to – she's in his office and he says – I would rather not take the bag from you by force. And I, so she's clearly in opposition to our central characters, regardless of what dynamic those characters have. And I think that sort of thing is helpful and is the sort of thing that will be helpful going down the road that these, that these people, Again, going back to what I was saying about the, about the lab techs, that the character that our three central, that our central characters don't operate in a vacuum, that there's a whole defined world that they operate in. And some of the people in that world might not be on their side. 
Well, let's talk about another character, and that's uh, Alana Bloom, because I'm interested, based on these first two episodes, how she's incorporated. Um, she's one of the characters, or one of, uh, Caroline Devers is one of the actresses who gets credited as one of the regulars in the opening credits, uh, along with Hetian Park for Beverly. And so I think that we ought to be paying more attention to these people. And in this episode, uh, we saw last week that she specifically mentions to Jack... Will and I have never been in the same room together alone. And when Will essentially brings that question up to her at the end of this episode, she pretends that she's never realized that before. Um, and so, Kate, if if this is being set up as a romantic interest, and you don't necessarily have to agree that it is at this point, um, but if it is, does that pairing have potential to you in a way that justifies romance in a kind of series like this? Oh, it's definitely being set up as a romance, at least what I'm seeing. And I, I actually, I have a couple times down here in my notes just how adorable they are together. And I do think they do a really good job of establishing that rapport immediately, both in the pilot and then again in this episode. The, the two have almost no time together because, as Alana says, she very strategically makes sure that she's not alone with him because that's how he will be most comfortable. And, uh, and so... It, and the fact that Carolyn DeVernis manages to make that not feel manipulative is pretty impressive because it should be it should be creepy and stalkerish, but instead it comes across as sweet. And yeah, I do think they do a good job of establishing that rapport and of you, you can see how these two uh, could get along very well and establish a really close bond, but you can also see why they aren't together. And I think that's an important thing to do when you're setting up a, a love interest or a potential romance. If they're such a great, amazing fit to begin with, why aren't they already together? And and I like that there's an uneasiness to their relationship still, even though they seem very comfortable with each other. That makes it very believable that they have not yet spent any time alone together. I would agree. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. Um in terms of the adorableness, the scene where uh, Lana's reading Flannery O'Connor to Abigail and Will wakes up and it's like, I just like listening to you read. That scene is just that that's just an awe moment right there. <laughs> and I and I will say there's also a definite comfort in that moment with the two of them that we don't see in the initial scene where she's basically saying Jack's about to ambush you and that we didn't see last se- last time because it's the first time where I feel even though she's talking to him in some therapy terms that she's finally does feel that she feels comfortable with him as a person. But again, it does go back to like to, every time she talks to Will, it's sort of some of the same ways that when Hannibal talks to Will, it's the vibe that yes, we're good. Yes, we're friends, but I'm also a therapist and I know full well what sort of things you are think you what sort of things might be going on inside your head right now. And I know that you know that that's my thought process. This episode is like, this is very much a vibe in Hannibal. The, as Will tells Jack, he knows all the tricks of therapy. So every conversation he has with either Hannibal or Alana has to be viewed in the perspective of, you know, I know, and I know, you know, I know. Certainly. And if you take it outside of the context of the, the romantic implications, it's, uh, intriguing kind of just to view her and Jack as uh, opposing forces for Will, kind of like the devil and the angel on either side of his shoulder, 
you know, one's saying, don't get too close. The other one's saying, I need you to get closer. And, um, you know, you should do this, but you don't have to, don't, don't, don't feel like you're pressured to. And so they, they work very well in tandem. Um, and the other thing that I noted with the, the Will and Han, uh, Will and Alana relationship was that, uh, when they do approach him at his lecture hall, uh, and, and mention getting therapy, he is given the option to have Alana as his therapist and, and doesn't snap up at that. And so you can tell that, yes, uh, there is something there that he's aware is probably has the potential to grow outside of his control and put him to a vulnerable situation. And so he's actively avoiding that, which I think is very intelligent writing. Uh, in the subtext, so that was great. Uh, I like that, like that scene where uh, they do am they quote unquote ambush him, and he says, "Are we doing this therapy session now?" I thought that made a nice little parallel to the scene later when Hannibal and Jack are having dinner, and he says, "I've already had my psyche bow." I just love that the, in a show that has this many people who are this concerned about the mind, that the conversations, everyone's just suddenly look can <laughs> look up randomly, and it's like, oh. So we're having this kind of conversation now. And the other thing I'll interject is that watching this now, I'm very aware of the number of references in this episode to Hannibal and Alana, uh, their familiarity with each other and uh, their previous uh, relationship as a mentor and mentee, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, those, those pre-established relationships, I think... Um really provide a, an intricate framework this early. And it's something that I think is easy to overlook. Um, a quote that's brought up near the end of the episode that, that Hannibal says as he's talking to Will about not killing uh, the Mushroom Man, as I'll call him. He says, if your Good intention... Name. What was his name? Uh, his name was, I think, Emmett Stems or something like that. But I like Mushroom Man, so let's go with that. Yeah, yeah, I think that that works. Um, he tells Will, uh, if your intention was to kill him, it's because you understand why he did the things he did. And Kate, I wanted to ask, why is it understanding specifically that would be the catalyst for Will killing in this case? And does that mean that Will didn't understand him? No, I, I think that's one of those rectangle square things where if he understood that doesn't mean that he would kill but if he killed it's because he understood um, and so I would say going with understanding specifically as a term is 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 significant because we've already had such discussion of Will's empathy and so we already know that Will can empathize with this, this person because he can empathize with anyone as the show makes abundantly clear but to have a deeper um, understanding and to be able to follow the thought process and accept the rationale that led the man, the mushroom man to kill is something different than being able to feel what he feels. The, this idea of understanding, it certainly ties into why I think the mushroom man is used as the procedural villain killer in this case who is trying to connect with people in a different and a deeper way um, which made me just think about how human connection has dictated action in, in these, these first two episodes of this series so far 
um, it, it seems to be that unless that connection is there, no action can happen. And so the only way for any progress to be made in any circumstances to have that kind of understanding. And in that hypothetical, if Will had completely understood the Mushroom Man, that prompts the action of killing him in some way. It was something that I was a little muddy on, but I think that it has something to do with that idea of it being the thing that creates action. I don't know. What, what do you think about that, Les? That's a that's a that that's a very interesting idea because that is absolutely what the mushroom man is doing because he has that whole mon he has that whole monologue after Will shoots him talking about how walking you walk through a field of fungus and they all react to you they all shoot off spores it's very much he is very much about seeking re, about seeking connection and reaction and he considers those two things intertwined because i mean his whole speech about why he abducted abigail from the hospital is about how you would have connect you would have felt her reach out to you in a in a way that she never had before and I do wonder if that might be sort of what finally motivates Will at the very end of the episode to agree to go to therapy, uh, to sit down, to actually sit down, because that's a very important gesture at the end of the episode, that he sits down in the patient chair in Lecter's office, that he's and he's opening himself up to having that conversation, that even while he may not be admitting admitting exact connections to Sorry, poor choice of words. He may not be admitting an exact agreement with those theories, just that idea of connection, and which is something that's so hard for him to make, is that he's finally opening the door to this in his mind. The only other thing I'd add to that, because this is an episode, as we've kind of all said, very much about connection, is that the the killer here is obsessed with the notion of connection, but he's only interested or he's seeking a connection that is at a simpler level because he, the, the the reaction that you get from this fungus is there's something moving let's check it out as opposed to the complicated and nuanced connection of human interaction and that's difficult or that's hard or that's something he feels he's not had in his life so he is happy to destroy that by killing people in order to get a simpler and more instinctual connection. And so to c contrast that with what will become a very intricate and difficult and complicated connection with Hannibal and Will is a particularly fun element of watching this episode again. Uh, so speaking of the idea of connections, as a matter of fact, to take a little tangent, I would like to talk about the wonderfalls of this episode. Have either... Oh, we we will get there. We oh. will get there. <laughs> oh, we'll get there? Yeah, we'll get there. Okay, That's sorry, de devil's in the details. <laughs> okay, so I will hold off on that, and you can go to your next point then. Denied. Boom. Oh. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. We we have three recurring segments now, and so usually stuff like that will fall under one of them. The first oh, of which, so... though, is going to be Kate's Classical Corner. And, uh, Kate, what can you tell us about? the scoring in Amu's Bouche because again this is the second episode now where I don't really know what technically electronica is but there are times where I feel like that was kind of happening 
Yeah, there's certainly uh, some computer music or sounds in, in well, in the first two episodes, uh, but specifically in this episode, there's a couple moments. And again, and I mentioned this in, in the pilot podcast, but it it is so strange to hear some of the scoring in the show, because while it is very much in the same sound and, you know, same oral landscape, it has not quite found its footing yet. It has not become what it will become. And uh, so it's, it, was, it was interesting. And we're going to get to episode three, and there's no classical music in episode three, and it's just weird. But we're on episode two right now. Um, there's one classical piece featured in the episode, and that is when Jack and, and Hannibal are having their dinner. That is the first movement of Jazz Box, uh, Brandenburg Concerto Number no. 4, Allegro. It is a lovely piece. It is, has a challenging violin part, uh, but it's a concerto for violin and two flutes or recorders. And uh, the, the flutes, though, the recorders very much act in tandem, so it basically becomes a, a conversation between the, the woodwinds and the violin, so that matches you know the conversation we get with Jack and Hannibal. But other than that, and other than the fact that it's lovely and beautiful, and there's that connection with Bach from the pilot as well, uh, th- this does not feel like a particularly specific choice in the way that me- much of the music later on will it's just another very pretty, very lovely, very entertaining and challenging to play as well as listen to piece to show us that Hannibal is cultured and to to separate out this uh, the scene of of dining, especially you know Hannibal's cooking from everything else in in the scoring. There's a lot of clusters. There's a lot of half steps and um, uh, a lot a lot of bowed percussion in this episode, which gives a very specific sound. But there's also there's a guitar line, an electric guitar line that we get for Will. At least I think it's electric guitar. And so it's very strange to hear that be Will's sort of instrument when as he's walking into his lecture hall early in the episode. I don't remember the show using that very much. But again, I, I when I first watched the first season, I wasn't listening as specifically to the music. So that's going to be a fun thing to listen for as the show continues, as we continue these summer podcasts. I wanted to specifically discuss a little bit the the scoring in the scene where the three boys find the mushroom fields, uh, because it's, it's, it's again, the, the percussion that, you know, we've become used to, but it's a very patient, again, consistent eighth notes rhythm, a very steady rhythm at first uh, that goes up a perfect fifth, which is an interval... Uh, going from one to five is very much a question interval, and without resolving to you know back to one, going from five to one, bum bum is something you hear at the end of a lot of music, but going from bum bum and holding that is even if you're not aware of it, those who are, have grown up and been you know indoctrinated with Western art music, that it feels unsettled and it's a somewhat un- uneasy. And and so the fact that that is you know consistently we go of one then five 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 in the scoring um, makes you feel a little bit un at ease. Uh, then that is the texture is thickened and there's a lot more uh, clusters of notes around that, which is really uh, quite lovely and also unsettling. But that that five that one five still remains underneath, and I, I really appreciated that. There's a tinkling kind of percussion in that scene as well that also mimics sort of the the water drip or the sugar water drip that we know that the we find out later that the victims have been uh, subjected to that I thought so I appreciated that there's some grandfather ch- clock style chiming in in the score later 
uh, during Will's projection that I appreciate. And then that same kind of clicking, ticking kind of sound or a, a, maybe a sort of crackle in in the projection scenes that we saw, heard in the pilot comes back here as well. And then the other thing that I'll say is um, when at the end we have Will and Hannibal's uh, conversation, Will talks about, uh, you know, the, again, we get piano scoring there for Will as we did in the pilot that that feels much more in keeping with what I expect for Will. But again, I look forward to seeing how my expectations are met and then subverted throughout this first season. But uh, the the piano line there is very um, is very smooth. And then, and mostly, it's sort of vaguely major, but then it turns minor when he talks about uh, that he liked killing Hobbes. There's this minor p soft chord in the, the space after that line that I particularly appreciated. And so contrasting that with the guitar line from earlier in the episode, which is much more rhythmic and consistent, uh, was, was particularly fun for me. So these, these are the, what I'm seeing. And, and this is, again, I expect there to be a lot more than this for me to really dig into in an episode of Hannibal, the music of an episode of Hannibal. And I did very much enjoy the score, but I'm I'm looking forward to like episode six, episode seven, where it just starts to get crazy. So that's where I'm at with the music right now. Hey, that's, that's where I'm at. I'm at too. So we're all in the same place. <laughs> and we're also all going on to the devil in the details, which I usually kick off. But less since you already brought it up, hit us with some wonderfuls. Yes, I would very much like to talk about the Wonderfalls of this episode. So last summer, I reviewed the entirety of Wonderfalls for our AV Club Classic. And for people who haven't seen Wonderfalls, the character Gretchen Speck, who pops up middle of the episode as the Mushroom Man's almost victim, uh, interestingly pops up in Wonderfalls, the second episode of that, as a classmate of the main character, Jay, who was played by Carolyn Davernus. And she and so she is not just playing. It's not just Brian Fuller bringing back another one of his at, favorite actors. She is playing the exact same character, Gretchen Speck. In fact, that line of hers about how she was Gretchen Speck Horowitz and she lost the hyphen, kept the ring. That is taken. I rewatched the ep, that episode before doing this. That line is taken verbatim from her Wonderfalls episode, and I just really appreciate that that connection. And the way that feeds into the theory of all of Brian Fuller's shows existing in the quote-unquote Fullerverse. And it just made me – and as much as I love that, it did make me wish there was one scene where, where Dr. Bloom tries to talk Gretchen down from her terrible experience because that would have blown my mind. <laughs> all right, let's go, Kate. I think I'm going to limit myself to, to three of these, so I will do the same to you. Okay. Um, the first devil in the details I have, and it's a big one, and I might have stolen uh, stolen this from you, uh, Sean. I, when we, we get that scene of Hannibal and Will, and Will's up on the top level, I literally wrote in my uh, notes here, OMG, guys, this set. Because it's gorgeous. Ugh, you stole it from me. <laughs> yes. Oh, such a, such a fantastic office. I don't know how many people he's had to kill or how long his practice has been going on, but good Lord, he's got a beautiful office, and good Lord, is it tricked out to make him just seem like this wonderful, cultural, otherworldly figure. Uh, my first devil in the details is 
probably the fact that Hannibal doesn't want Will um, reporting his hallucination of Garrett Jacob Hobbs to Jack, which is kind of in the middle of a bigger conversation, and so you register it, but it's probably easier to pass over given that it is rather important because of how manipulative it is and how subtly manipulative it is. So that was the first one that I would point out. Um, I'll also say the, the FBI wears a lot of blue this week. So the cops are in blue, which is a fun little touch. And I already mentioned how much I love that red ensemble we got from Freddie. So there were some fun clothes this week. <laughs> uh, Les, did you have any details that you wanted to add? Uh, I did just, well, I didn't want to say quickly, well, I got another thing going back to my wonderful notice uh, that and, and this did tie into sort of the episode itself. Uh, the moment where Alana comes up to Will in his in his office to say that Jack's coming and she's saying ambushes later, immediately later, soon to now. I thought that was <laughs> that was that, that was a a very Jay Tyler thing to say. And B, it's sort of I was I was pleased to see it because. I mean, Brian Fuller, before doing Hannibal, he's been known for things like Pushing Daisies, Dead Like Me, Wonderfalls, that has sort of a very whimsical quality to the dialogue. And I appreciate the fact that that sort of whimsical quality, even for a show that's as operatic and macabre as Hannibal is, there's still that little degree of whimsy that peeks out at the corners every so often. Uh, my second detail would be, I think it's at the beginning of the episode when uh, Will is having a nightmare about Garrett Jacob Hobbs being hung up on uh, the shooting range. The the knocking of Jack on the window ends up um, paralleling exactly the, the gunshots that are coming out of his gun, which was a very nice touch. I'm going I'm, to, I'm, seeing as you're limiting me to three here, I'm going to smush a few different imagery things together. So I, I really like that the Will and, Far and the Mushroom Man blocking is such a direct parallel to Garrett Jacob Hobbs and the pilot. And then other imagery is the, the water imagery with the coffee and the creamer was just absolutely lovely. And the flicker of candlelight and shadow and flame on Hannibal's face when he says, I'd love to have the two of you for dinner uh, was particularly entertaining for me. So there's a lot of really nice imagery to go along with, uh, you know, think, those details like you had mentioned of the, the knocking and everything else that we got this week. And my last detail, which was a personal one, was Hannibal's use of the tablets. I just had to replace my laptop, <laughs> and I, I got it with uh, a, a Transformer book, which is a laptop slash tablet. So I can kind of disconnect it from the keyboard and pretend that I am Hannibal, which I will do <laughs> often. Uh, Les, were there any more details <laughs> that you want to add, or should we move on? Um, uh, I will just say quick, quick details. I do sort of regret the fact that Zeller did not, uh, Zeller and Katz did not build one of those clacking, swinging ball things, as Beverly put it, out of those bullets. Because while Will would not have wanted to keep that in any way, shape, or form, it would have been a very wonderful image. All right. That'll take us to our final recurring segment. The newest one for the vodcast, Spoiled Meat. So I will note this in the post. Uh, if you have not seen Season 2 or the rest of Season 1 of Hannibal, stop listening now or fast forward to us signing off, which I don't know why you would. 
other than to hear where you can find Les's work online, of course. Um, which I which but, I already said before. You can yes. find that at av, at avclub.com. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, I'll make a note of this in the post so you can fast forward it if you would like. But spoiled meat. So anything that we picked up on in this episode that's made us think about certain other things that have happened in this series so far. Kate, we'll begin with you. All of these conversations with Hannibal and Will, and again, this was something that I also mentioned in the pilot episode podcast, but uh, but but all of these conversations with Hannibal and Will are so much more sinister now <laughs> that we know his longer-term goals. So when he's talking about understanding why somebody would kill, instead of just feeling like, well, a natural conversation, uh, you know, that, that you would be having after an experience like like the one that Will's had, which is how I, it felt when I first watched it. It's, oh, evil baby steps along the path to trying to turn Will into a killer. And, uh, yeah, it's remarkable what knowing what's going to come <laughs> next, how knowing what's going to come next shapes what you've already seen. Uh, Les, go for it. I- I, well, I talked. I talked earlier about how I thought. I thought the second episode felt more procedural compared to the first. And looking at the rest of the season, it is remark. It is noticeable how much Amuse Bosch feels like a crime drama procedural, as opposed to the serious character drama that Hannibal becomes late in season one and season two. But what really struck me, honestly, watching this episode, was how much brighter it seemed in comparison. Like usually when I watch. I'll, when I watched Hannibal season two, I felt like I had to turn up the brightness on my TV to figure out just what was going on at some points. There was a definite brightness about this episode from the mushroom groves to uh, even Hannibal's office seemed a lot brighter than it seemed in in season two installments. Uh, you can definitely... You can definitely feel in this episode, this early in the show, they're sort of starting to figure out what they can get away with. There's plenty of those uh, slower visual scenes, like you, know, you mentioned the coffee creamer scene before. There's also when the bullets are falling out of his gun and the scene where the pills are moving through the rotator. It's just sort of interesting watching this episode and then comparing it to like Takewase from season two and knowing just how dark and how extreme this show can go in its visuals that even, again, this is an episode where people are planted in the ground and used as fertilizer for mushrooms that it seems almost tame in comparison to some of the things this show's been able to do going forward. Yeah, that was definitely something that I noticed where much different take on the lighting to the point where there would be actual like lamps on in this on the screen, and yet there was so much natural light already that it, it didn't need to be. So that was interesting that you mentioned it. Uh, the the things that stuck out for me in this one happened in in Jack and Hannibal's conversation when they were having dinner. Uh, when Jack brings up both his wife and the agent that he lost in the field, which of course is Miriam, and so uh, yes, you know. None of us knew what we were getting into without knowing ahead of time that both Gina Torres and Anna Chlumsey were going to be on this show and absolutely kill it. And so to have that implanted like in the second episode, uh, that was just kind of like a massive grin on my face. <laughs> implanted. Interesting. I prefer to think of cultivated based on this episode. Transferred brain to brain. Yes. You're... That works too. Perfect. You're both perfect. So, 
Um, anything else that we, anything else that stuck out in terms of uh, future-ish stuff? Yeah. Uh, well, just go, just going back to uh, what I said before about how this was very much a table setting episode. I mean, yes, it's a table setting e- even when you're only comparing it to the pilot, but it's just fascinating to see using the fungus metaphor, the feelers coming out, the field growing as Hannibal just gradually starts to draw Will in because he he's only begun to start thinking about what he can do to have, Will in his, to have Will in his orbit and to think about what could happen. And it's just sort of very fascinating to see those earliest stages of this relationship, knowing what we know about where that relationship is going on. I mean, there's the co- there's there is the comment that Alana that I can't remember if it's Alana or Jack that has very early on that Hannibal's a better fit for Will's therapy because it's not personal. To know how personal it gets, it, it just honestly made me giggle when that line came up. Yeah, the the other line that I would note was um, when Hannibal says the inevitability of there being a man so bad that killing him felt good. And we know exactly where that's going now. So that, that was excellent. Um, (laughs) But if that's all, then we will conclude spoiled meats and thus the discussion of this podcast. So thank you listeners for tuning in. And thank you, of course, to our special guest, Les Chappell. Les, where can our listeners find you online? Well, I've said, well, as I've said a couple times, you can find my writing at the AV Club, avclub.com. And you can also follow me on Twitter at Twitter at lessismore909. And, of course, thank you again to uh, my fabulous and dedicated co-host, Kate Calls It. Kate, where can our listeners find you online? You can, you can also find me at the AV Club uh, from time to time, and you can... Of course, find me at soundonsite.org, and on Twitter, I'm at The Televerse, and of course, The Televerse is the weekly TV podcast of Sound On Sight that I co-host uh, with a certain Sean Coletti, so if, if people are interested in our thoughts on you know TV that's actually current, you can check that out, which goes out uh, at soundonsite.org on Tuesdays and Wednesday, or Tuesday night, Wednesday morning, depending on how much work I had that day. Um, but I always love talking um, Hannibal and the rest of TV with you guys. So hit me up on Twitter, and I would very much appreciate it. <laughs> if, if anybody can come up with a, a better reason for the Brandenburg to have been included in this, I would like to hear it because I feel like I must be missing something because it didn't feel complicated enough. So let me know. Drop me a line on Twitter. And as Kate already mentioned, uh, the Televerse is a podcast that exists out there. I've listened to it, and I don't think that Sean Guy is very good, but uh, you should listen to it for Kate because she's great <laughs> on that podcast, as she is on this one. So uh, you can also find me at Twitter, at Sean Coletti, or uh, my written reviews will appear at tvovermind.com or at soundonsite.org. Uh, but that's it for this week. Kate and I will be back next week to talk about Season 1, Episode 3, Potage. Uh, And until then, thank you again for tuning in. This has been This Is Our Design.